Welcome to the Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. I'm your host, Sharon Betters, and our vision at Mark Inc. is to produce resources that offer help and hope, especially to hurting people. You know, studies show that the loss of a spouse, whether through divorce or death, is one of the most devastating losses a human can experience. My guest today, Deb McQuilkin, knows the unspeakable grief of loss of a husband through an unwanted divorce and the sorrow of losing a beloved husband through death. Perhaps these losses are why Deb feels such a kinship with Naomi, whose story we find in the book of Ruth. Through her new book, Naomi, Reason to Hope, Deb invites us to consider our own shattered dreams, difficult relationships, practical needs, and learn through Naomi's responses to loss. And Deb knows all about long distance grandparenting as she travels from her home in Australia to the United States to spend time with grandchildren on both continents. She is not only an author, but before retirement and her move to Australia, she was associate professor at the University of South Carolina in health systems administration, focusing on capacity building in global health. Before her husband Robertson's death, she ministered with him worldwide. And so Deb, I feel like I'm meeting a friend because we both have a special kinship with Naomi. So welcome. I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe one way that you have fun. Ah, well, I'm the mother of four birth children. Then I have five grown stepchildren, eight grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. So lots of family. I'm a divorcee. I'm a widow. I was a professor. I retired in 2019. I moved to Australia initially for 11 months, and then COVID came and shifted things for um, for everyone. And then, and so now I split my time. I'm back here, and then I will return to the Australia. I hope as soon as possible. What do I do for fun? Well, you asked for one. The, I'm taking my jean. So that's um, my new adventure. There we offer courses in through the university for older adults. And, uh, and so I decided that was that, that's frequently played in Australia because we have a large Asian population. So I thought, oh, that'd be a fun thing to learn. So I've met some lovely ladies and learned a new game. And so it's fun. Good for you. That's good for you. That, sound, that does sound fun on so many different levels. You mentioned uh, aging population and... We resonate on so many different levels, Deb. Naomi, as we mentioned, that's that's who the book is centered on, Naomi Reason to Hope. And as you were writing this, and as I was reading it, I thought of how in our book, Aging with Grace, Flourishing in Anti-Aging Culture, Susan Hunt and I included Naomi as one of the women to look to about what it means to age with grace. And I've thought as I was reading through your book, studying your book, that it would be a perfect follow-up to Aging with Grace because it's so practical. And so we can talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But as I worked through your book, I kind of sensed that you and Naomi are kind of on parallel journeys. Tell us what that means, if if that's true, and and what draws you to Naomi? Well, Naomi chose God in spite of adversity. And I think the older we get, the more we've seen that there's almost nothing from which you can't recover. I have have raised four children. Whatever could have happened probably happened. And we got through it and they're on their feet 
I'm on my feet. So I do think we can recover. Naomi faced loss after loss, and God met her at every point of need, every time. She was a wife. She was a widow. How many Bible stories are about widows? She was a mother. She was a mother-in-law. She experienced some degree of poverty, which I find an interesting question. She moved internationally, which, of course, I've done, so I could really identify with that. She faced huge life transitions. And then she's got some age differences that resonate in mine. My second husband, Robertson, was 27 years older than I am. And so while he was alive, I probably identified more with Ruth. Once he died, then I identified more with Naomi. So certainly God redeemed Ruth. But the story is really about redeeming the line of Elimelech, of which Naomi was central to that. And Naomi knew she was part of something bigger than herself. And that's what I want to do is I want to be involved in something bigger than than just my little world. I loved how you talk in your book about setting ourselves up for expectations that Mm -hmm. end up disappointing us. We set ourselves up with a view of what life is going to look like and somehow it doesn't turn out that way. How did your view of God set you up for disappointments as you were, Mm -hmm. as you look back at yourself as a younger woman? Yeah. Particularly, I think, as a younger woman, I think to some degree, we all have been influenced by prosperity gospel thinking that somehow God owes us good things, um, that our pursuit of personal peace and affluence is legitimate. Uh, We allow our first world thinking to normalize expectations that really aren't biblical. For our disappointment with God is huge when our child doesn't get into that university or that school we think they should, or illness strikes our family, or we can't buy that bigger house. Those are first world questions. What Ethiopian Christian would be disappointed with God with those questions? I mean, it's not, it's not their world. And so I think we don't separate cultural from biblical expectations. So I really do think that's a, that's a huge reason why we have trouble managing expectations as a believer. The other is, I think social media makes us worse almost because we see these unnatural levels of a wonderful life and they post such marvelous things and we think we should be able to live like that. We compare ourselves among ourselves and 2 Corinthians 10.2 says we're not wise when we do this. And so I think social media has made it worse. I came to Christ during the Campus Crusade, what we now call Crew, where they were doing the four spiritual laws. And the first spiritual law was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, I came to Christ out of that. I wanted a wonderful life. I wanted John 10, 10. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I wanted the abundant life. Didn't have a huge conviction of sin. It was more I wanted the abundant life. So then I define wonderful on my own selfish terms not considering how God sees wonderful as as the opportunity to become more like him and to walk in ever closer oneness with him. Yeah, I can really relate because I grew up during that uh, period too. And we learned the four spiritual laws. And there is that implication that a wonderful life means there's not going to be any pain, which is totally unrealistic. And I really love the way that you pull in the cultures, the first world versus the third world. But the Bible has to stand for all of 
And so it seems like it's very relative. So your view, uh, you start out life as a, a young woman, a young married woman, a young mother, and your view, whether right or wrong, is God's got this. I'm going to be okay. We're going to have a great life. All my dreams are going to come true. We know that's unrealistic, but we do think that way. So how did um, the dissolution of your marriage, an unwanted divorce, how did that impact your faith, especially in the context of your expectations? Well, I was married for 30 years to my first husband, and we were in ministry. I was a pastor's wife. I pursued ministry. I was hungry after God. I was a committed mom to raise Christian children. And so it shook it pretty badly. I would, I mean, it, it, yeah. <laughs> and I would see things like God protected Sarah and Abraham when she went into Pharaoh's harem and somehow God protected her. Why didn't he protect my marriage? I'll share with you some questions. When I was going through my divorce, I wrote a book that has never been published because there wasn't a market called Advice from One Pastor's Wife to Another when there's pain from the pulpit. So I'll just let me just share with you a few of the questions I was asking. When this seems so bad, how is it that you're good, God? Or how could you have sifted all this through your hands? I mean, we know God's sovereign. How does he let these difficult things happen? How can a good God sift that through his hands? For me, because it was adultery, I was asking, Lord, if you finish what you began, which was your us, being your people, how can this end well? I mean, this was a major, it was not a mistake, a major wrong choice. How can it, how could it end well? And to God's glory. Another one I I would ask is when I prayed your prayers that we might be one, even as you are one, why didn't you answer that prayer? I mean, if Jesus prays that prayer, you think God's going to answer it. Why didn't he answer it for me? Uh, He says right in, I think it's John 15, that The spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I have to go, did you convict? What happened to that? If I trust you to do that, did you really do it? And so it was about who is God and and what was he doing in our lives? Yeah, another one would be if the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and you can direct it like a water course wherever you please, why didn't you direct his heart? Lots of questions about God's sovereignty. I'm not totally sure I have an answer to yet. My beloved second husband used to say, mystery is God's glory. I can't understand God. I will never understand him. But isn't that a good thing, not a bad thing? Yeah, I resonate with so many of those questions because mm-hmm. my 15-year-old son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly, were in a fatal car accident. But by God's grace, he has, I don't understand all of the answers, but I resonate with many of the questions that you are raising. Mm-hmm. and. You're right. It's the sovereignty of God that becomes a comfort. That the sovereignty of God was not a comfort in the beginning. And I know that for some people, that's like fingernails on a blackboard. And I'm sorry, but for many, they are hiding in the pews, afraid to say, I'm questioning God's goodness. And for me, and it sounds like for you, there was a wrestling to uh, reconcile God's love with his sovereignty. And I think anytime there's a horrendous loss like that, that's where we we have to go and give ourselves grace. And I see that in Naomi. And I, mm-hmm. I do want to talk about Naomi's response to the losses and how we resonate with her. But 
first, for the woman who is listening and listening to all those questions, and we don't really have time to unpack the answers to many of them, what encouragement or counsel would you give to a woman in a similar place who just, maybe it was years ago, and she's still very bitter, very angry, just can't move past that terrible wound and betrayal that she's experienced? I think there's a difference between cannot and will not. The speed of healing, I think, is a, somewhat a matter of the will. I will confess, I was surprised that anybody could hurt as badly as I hurt, as long as I hurt that badly, and live. I just didn't know you could hurt that bad. My second husband used to say, adversity is the fast track to becoming like Jesus. So that's, that's a little bit of a comfort. Time heals. Even after healing, we scar, and that takes a long time to fade. But we got to cooperate with God and what he wants to do in our lives. So, but the way you worded your question implied, I, I would focus more on what are we doing about the forgiveness piece? And um, I did a whole list, because I think the church looks at forgiveness I'm not sure we define it well. So if for those who really looked at it, we know that to forgive means to cancel the debt. Well, you know what? I just promise you, between you and me and whoever's listening, he couldn't pay that debt he owed me. I mean, he couldn't. My first husband could not pay that debt. I, there's nothing he could do that would make up for what my I experienced in my children and my church experienced. It just, you can't. So you cancel it. That's all you can do is cancel the debt. Now, with that, and this is the tricky thing, comes we got to get rid of the resentment. And that's the emotional piece that I think we have to wrestle through is getting rid of that resentment. And I would just oftentimes have a visual image that I had these handfuls of stinky, smelly garbage And all I could do was hand it to Jesus and say, you got to take care of it because I don't know what to do with this. And somehow in his grace, he did. I wish we could talk about that all day long because there is so much meat in what you're saying. I've never heard it put quite that way before. And I uh, I think you're right on about what it means to forgive, canceling the debt. We can't cancel the debt. Only Jesus can can do that for us. But I have to cancel feeling like he owes me something. Mm. I can't look, you know, it's for women who've had husbands who had an affair. Oftentimes we want them to come bowing at our knees with flowers and saying, I was such a fool. I should never have done that. You're the most wonderful woman in the world. Mm. And they may do that, but more likely they're not going to do that. And, and therefore, if I'm always looking to that, I can't move on. So when I let that go, when I no longer look for these things, then I'm free to move on to where God wants me to be. And I think one of the things uh, somebody listening might be saying, I just don't know how to do that. I would suggest that you get a hold of Deb's book, Naomi Reason to Hope, and just work through it little by little and do that with the prayer that God is going to show you how to open your hands and give him that garbage and that resentment. And also to have someone come alongside of you who maybe somebody ahead of you who's experienced the same thing. And I hope that someday you get that little book published because I speak to so many pastor's wives who are experiencing such heartbreak that we need all the help that we can get as right, right. 
And especially when, the, as you say, pain from the pulpit, that that's, right. um, yeah, un- unfortunately. Well, I think that leads us into Naomi because you could read Naomi's story and hear her say, I left full and came back empty and conclude that, wow, she's given up on the Lord and she has a weak faith. What do you believe about Naomi's response? Do you think that she's indicating weak faith here or was her lament a sign of deep faith? That's an interesting question. One of the pluses of my study is learning inductive skills, learning to look at keywords and learning to make lists and learning what do we learn about Naomi or Boaz or God. Well, if you look at that verse in chapter one, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She, four times, God is mentioned in two verses. So she hasn't walked away from God. She knows God is still sovereign. God is still in control. She doesn't negate that. She doesn't like what he's done. And she's saying that, but she says he's still God. Yeah, and I I have come to the conclusion that those who lament when we are turning toward the Lord, that to me is deep faith. We are saying you are sovereign, just like she did. And I love I love the uh, references, four references in two verses to the Lord, and really digging deep into the Scripture. And your study shows us how to do that. It reveals such treasures that we come away with a totally different perspective than we got from a quick read from, from the uh, surface. Well, as I'm thinking about your own spiritual journey, I know, you know, you're an older woman. And so you didn't get here like by uh, one, two, three steps. And, and now I'm in a place where I can write books and share the good news of the gospel. There had to be places along the way in your journey through loss where you had aha moments that even though your heart was breaking, you knew that the Lord was keeping the promise of his presence and grace. Can you share some of those aha moments with us? Maybe just one or two. One story I think of, it was like probably at the depths of when things were difficult. I went to church. And of course, when a pastor's wife faces a situation I was in, we often have to leave our church. Otherwise, the chaos just continues. So I was in a sister church. So they sort of knew the situation. and. But it was lonely. Who do you sit with? I mean, you're a fresh divorcee or a fresh widow. Who do you sit with? Where do you go? I faced empty nest at the same time as this loss of this marriage. And so I I would be going to church all by myself for the first time in my life. And it was incredibly lonely. And I just wept. And so I left church, I got in my car and I, I mean, I was crying so hard. I had to pull over to some little deserted place. I don't even remember where it was, but I just wept and wept. And I said, God, I feel like I'm drowning and you've got to help me get through this. And Ephesians 3, 17 came, he brought it to my mind. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So it was like that. He just says, I'm going to do that for you. And it's like, he just set me on a rock. The waters didn't go away, but I was on a rock. I was steady and I was steadfast. He met me right there. That I, It's hard for me to keep my eyes dry uh, listening <laughs> to the stories you're sharing because I have moments like that myself where to somebody else, it might seem very insignificant, but you know that God just gave you a treasure, a treasure mm-hmm. in the darkness that's mm-hmm. priceless. And mm-hmm. that's priceless. And you remember it these many years later. So in the middle of your own broken places, what means did the Lord use uh, to reveal his love for you specifically? Well, I think it's a variety of things. I think it was his word. I stayed in his word. I think it was his presence. It was his people. He brought people alongside. He listened to the same thing over and over and over and over. It was his provision. He did take care of me. And um, each of those deepened my relationship with people, my sense of his presence, my understanding of his word deepened through the losses that I was facing. I was playing yesterday with my grandson and he was playing with magnets and He has some very strong magnets and some magnets that aren't so strong. Well, the very strong magnets, I mean, it was like a a piece of metal was sucked straight to that magnet edge. And I thought that's how it was when I was going through the divorce. It was like the spirit of God was the magnet and he just sucked me tight next to him so that to separate us would have taken a great deal of effort. And I was grateful for that for the power of the spirit to draw me close to him. I had a new appreciation for Paul's claim where he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because oftentimes we want to just die. I mean, I'll just be frank. We just go, I don't know what all this is for. And I just soon go to heaven and forget all this. And I don't want to live life. But as I thought about that, I live because that's his will for me today. And when I die, there's no loss, there's only gain. So that had a brand new meaning for me to live is because that's his will for me today. Yeah, that's what gets you out of bed in the morning when you don't know what the day is going to hold, that this is his will. Today, this is his will for me, whatever comes. You quote Fran Siaka. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. And I'd like to read that quote because I think it really opens up good stuff. Victimization, the ideology that I am a victim of others, is a 20th century catch-all to explain life's pain. Yet, while providing a temporary balm for our emotional aches, it subtly destroys our confidence in God's competence and the conviction that he really cares. That's We need to hear that over and over again. But when someone deeply wounds us, Deb, our natural response is to feel victimized. And we feel like everybody's ganging up on us. What are some ways that you have discovered that have helped you refuse to label yourself as a victim? Well, as I thought through this question, Fran talks about victimization, which I think is a little different than being a victim. So many of us are victims. I mean, you were a victim of a tragic accident. Um, I was a victim of someone else's poor moral choices. So many of us are victims, and that is it is what it is. When I'm not suggesting we change that, but I think the victimization that Fran presents here is that exaggeration of victimhood 
for a variety of reasons. And let me suggest some. One is to justify abuse of another. I can be angry because I'm a widow and I'm justified because I'm hurting. Therefore, I can be angry or to manipulate others as a coping strategy. So manipulation or abuse or to seek attention. Sometimes we like being a vi- being victims because we get more attention. Or, and I think this is what Fran refers to, to divert responsibility. I think being a victim takes away our responsibility in the situation. In victimization, which is different, difficulties are always someone else's fault. So we blame the other. There's not, we don't take responsibility ourselves. And I may be a victim of someone else's choices, but I don't have to stay where they put me. I think that's where the difference lies. It's my obligation as an adult to reclaim responsibility for my own happiness. I can move forward into living life again. God does care. God does heal. I don't have to stay where I was. I really love the way that you have delineated that. I'm thinking, okay, so and let's say an abusive husband who says to the wife that he is just maybe beat up. Well, you made me do it. You're right. you're victimizing me kind of thing. And I can see that though for any kind of a loss in my own life with dealing with grief is to, like you said, uh, well, I deserve to be angry because I don't have my child anymore. And so that's my excuse for getting angry with you and and or manipulating, like I need more attention because of the loss. I think that we have to work through some of that when we are first wounded and broken um, and to be confronted with the truth of what we're doing and the scriptures and friends can help us to navigate that. I mean, sometimes we need to tell somebody, look, I don't even know what I'm thinking right now. And I give you permission to tell me when I'm thinking the wrong thing to help us get more focused on the freedom that comes. And that was, I think you've already described it, but what, what freedom is there in refusing to see yourself as a victim? What we choose to do with what has happened to us is a choice that belongs to me. Nobody can make that choice for me, but no one can take the credit or the blame for my choices. I made the choices. We choose our response to terrible difficulties. I may be influenced by another. Let's say I wasn't a great wife. You know, I'd like to think I was the world's most perfect wife, but let's say I wasn't a great wife or I had habits that graded. That could influence my husband's happiness. I'm not saying it won't, but I can't make or break his happiness. He chooses that for himself. And so it is as a victim, someone else can't make or break my own happiness. I have to choose it. I have to make the choice to be happy or fulfilled or confident. And that comes from walking with God so that regardless of what happens in life, I know that God is in control. I know God is good. I know that he loves me and that he has something better for me. So I move forward into that. I don't stay in the past. I move forward into what God has for me. It's kind of like the the uh, the uncle who gets drunk every Christmas and you're hosting Christmas and you're hoping that he's not going to get drunk that Christmas so that you can have a happy time. Probably not going to happen. So you have to figure out a different way to find that place of and I can see the freedom that that gives because we can't control what other people do or their actions toward us. Well, and I can't bear the guilt that someone mm. else says you didn't make me happy. That's mm. not my pro- that's not my responsibility. That is so true. 
that 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 is so true but the guilt that you feel the manipulation right. yeah it's right. your fault that i did this right. again going back to that victimization right. you have lost two husbands and one through an unwanted divorce and one through death what have you learned through those losses about god's promise to be a husband to the widow well i think sharing life with a counterpart is god's original plan for his children So companionship is really nice. I don't want to minimize that at all. Right now, I have the opportunity. I live on an island near my children while I'm in between two countries. I watch the sunrise over the ocean and the sunset over the marsh. Wouldn't that be wonderful to share that with a spouse? I mean, every once in a while, and I'll see older couples here in the fall, they'll be at the coast and they'll be walking in down the sunset, holding hands. And I think, wouldn't that be nice? But it's also nice to share those sunrises and sunsets and moonrises with the one who created it and to marvel over it with him and to thank him for the privilege. I mean, I just sit there and just talk to him as if he were a companion. And it's peaceful to have the headspace to see God at work. And to think about his nature and his character. So that's how he's sort of how he's a husband to me is because I've got more headspace. I'm not so distracted by fixing his lunch or fixing his dinner or folding his underwear or whatever it is we might do. I get to talk to God. People crowd out the opportunity to walk with God. And so in all of this, that can make us lose perspective. I think Naomi lost perspective. It's easy in a time of loss to lose perspective. Naomi, if we look at this, she really wasn't empty. She says, I came back empty. I went out full. I came back empty. If you really look at that, it's really not true at all. She had a committed daughter-in-law. She was well-received in Bethlehem. She was well-respected by the city elders. She had prospects of more than one kinsman redeemer. She had enough money to even move from one country to another safely as a single woman, that must have taken something that we might not take into account in it today. So it's a a lot of it's a matter of perspective. Being alone is different from being lonely. God is always with us. He always wants our fellowship. Wow. I hadn't thought about it that way before. That's very encouraging. Deb, as we grow older, why is it important for us to ask this question? What do I want to define me as a person? How do I want to be known? Well, I think by default, we become more of what we were as young women. We might be more controlling, more angry, more demanding, or we might be kinder or more generous, or maybe even more dependent. I think the difficulties of life skew our personalities in directions that sometimes we're not aware. I I believe that a purposeful mentality of growth into being more of what God wants his people to be is more effective than trying to be transformed by drift. We need to identify what are the attributes and character qualities that we want to define us and then to work to develop those. Let me give you an example. I'm teaching Naomi right now. And as I've done the observation worksheet in chapter two and chapter four, Twice, Boaz is called kind. Twice, Boaz is called worthy. So in my mind, I've pondered, what is it? And I've talked. I saw as I'm walking with friends, I'll go, what do you think it means to be kind? And 
I, when have you ever said to somebody, oh, you're so worthy? I mean, we don't use those terms anymore. So we walk and talk and dialogue about that. And I, those are things I want to be. So even in this study, I've been challenged to be, I mean, Boaz was loved by his workers. He was loved apparently by lots of people. I want to be more like that. So I have to be purposeful to get there. Yeah, be very intentional about mm. uh, where you're going and, and what you want to be known by. Mm. Well, I hate to wrap up our conversation. This has been so rich. And I hope, listener, that you will check out Deb's book, Naomi, Reason to Hope. A lot of what we've talked about today, you'll have an opportunity through that book to just kind of unpack in your own personal life and take the time to just soak in what it means to have a reason to hope, even in the middle of extraordinary loss. But as we wrap up, I'd like, Deb, for you to speak to the woman who really does resonate with Naomi's story and your story. She is in a season of life where nothing in her life matches her expectations. What encouragement can you give? I would suggest that remember that God is good, that everything that he does is right. He does love us. Who wouldn't give my son for anybody? And he gave his son for me, that I might walk in oneness with him, the creator of the universe. Above all, pursue God, keep having a quiet time, keep getting with Christian women, keep going to church, and eventually life gets better. One of the great lessons I learned from Naomi, she faced very difficult times in her life. Yet the story ends with Naomi being immersed in a family. She had a home. She had a good reputation. Naomi was not alone. She was loved by Ruth and Boaz. She was surrounded by her friends. They are the ones that named Boaz. She had a darling baby boy in her lap who was the grandfather to King David and an ancestor to the Lord Jesus. This was a different life than she expected, but it was a good life. Deb, thank you so much for joining us today and for this very insightful and meaty conversation. I do wish that we could be neighbors so we could walk and talk together and just share what God is showing us through his word. My guest today has been Deb McQuilkin, and she is the author of Naomi, Reason to Hope. And it is an inductive Bible study that I know you will want to check out. It would be a great follow-up to our conversation because Deb unpacks a lot of the principles that she talked about today in our podcast. This is the Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. And you can find more resources like this, more redemptive stories by going to markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. And we hope that you will share this resource with others. Don't keep it to yourself. If God has used it to encourage you, I'm sure there's a friend who needs the same kind of encouragement. Again, I'm Sharon Betters, and I thank you for joining us for the Help and Hope podcast. I look forward to being with you next time. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhope, 
www.hopenhopenow.org. Download the Help and Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.